This is the Spark Podcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Joseph Hodges' first passion was flight. But after a failed attempt at a pilot's exam, he thought he'd better follow up on his second passion, architecture. His designs were always seen as a little bit too big and ambitious to be real buildings, and his family told him that he would always be relegated to theater, something that he thought was a great compliment. So when he found himself working on the set of Hook, his passion for design found an outlet. And over the span of his career, he has worked on everything from period dramas and science fiction to contemporary drama. I recently had a chance to catch up with Joseph, and we talked a little bit about his experiences working on Hook, his long run on the series 24, and how he's staying creative outside of the Hollywood system. Here's my conversation with Joseph Hodges. Before we get into talking about your career, which has been such, so fascinating, um, I kind of wanted to start by finding out how you knew you wanted to create things and when did you know that you wanted to create things? Oh, that would be just, uh, I don't know. Um, Growing up, I was always building things, Um, whether it was in my bedroom, because after school, I kind of wasn't allowed out like the other kids that used to go out and play. So my bedroom was sort of the place where I would spend most of my time. So I would build models. I built a whole interior of a a spaceship once, like the, the cockpit. Just I, and I would spend most of my time building it, but never actually play in them. I would build them, and then that was it. That was that's all I needed to do. And grandfather, when I used to come to Mallorca, grandfather had a, a place behind the bar where they kept the bottles and things, and I used to build houses and things out of that. And I was just always building. I remember, it, I think I I was very young. My great grandmother said something to my mother about how I'd grow up to be a designer or a builder or something. And I remember asking, what did she say? And she translated it for me. And I said, no, I wanted to be a pilot. And not until I was 16 and I failed my exams the first time did I sort of give up that pilot thing. But always in the background, I was just either drawing or just building something, building, creating stuff. It doesn't matter what it was. And did you go to school for, for design? I think you went to school for architecture, right? I went to the Brighton School of Architecture because at the time it was the longest course you could go on. <laughs> and I really wanted to be a cyclist, a professional cyclist. So I thought that I could go. My cousin had just, or was in the middle of doing architecture at uh, Cardiff University. And I saw what he was doing. And I just heard that it was like a seven year course, three years in, one year out and two more years at university. And I thought, oh, five years, that's good good time to train and I didn't realize how much I loved then what I was doing in architecture and how much time it actually took up (laughs) and so how when you started uh, doing design and architecture I mean the jump from that to what you do now is not that large but what it's not it's not a natural progression so how did you get from architecture school to working in the movie business um yeah it's funny well it is I do sometimes when people say what does a production designer do he's the architect of a movie you know he's uh from you know 
when you start off talking with the director of what they want to what it to look like uh if they have ideas it's like you know in architecture somebody some people know what they want their house to look like and some people like i just like your work do do something in your style i've got upset sometimes when i was younger when people would hire you on something let's say it's a a commercial or something and i you know they've hired me for my work and then once you've presented them with something they want to completely change it and and it's not your style and me not being politically correct i'm always like you don't i'm not calling myself picasso but if you want uh, a monet you don't hire picasso to paint it for you you hire monet do you know what i mean and it's i i understand when some people will look at my designs because it's it has a look like if i walked into somebody's house and it's the laura ashley sort of wallpaper and all of that it turns me off it's not my style so it's like I, i'll i'll design you a house and i'll do wallpaper like that if i'm doing a commercial we can do that but um uh so yeah so it's uh it's very similar i was at actually at architectural school in my second year and i think some government inspectors came around and um i spoke to one and uh, i know that the head of the school or something was shaking his head and, and bottom line was that they were su suggesting that unless i calm down my imagination all i'd ever be able to do is work in theater i think so i was so happy to hear that because i found arch architecture uh i think again in the second second year second season second year of school i saw blade runner and i didn't know that there were jobs as designers in the movies i just assumed that hopefully i'd become a, a successful architect and when i was 50 somebody would go whoever designed those buildings i want them to design my movie so yeah so i'd seen blade runner and that's what i wanted to do i was like oh well i'll just become a famous architect and or successful architect and someone will pick me anyway i met somebody and they they uh, after after university i i started work as an architect but then ended up in america and somebody saw my work and it just went on from there i literally like bit like nilo that's why i wanted to you know i touched base those things that um you fall into because you have a, a i don't know either a lack of knowledge of it like george hired nilo because he didn't want people the new the system they were you know he and uh that's you know that relationship i've had with nilo over the years it's been it's like um he's the he's the master and i'm the karate kid you know he calls you josan and from from day one when we when i met him it was always um i don't know how to describe it it's been a, it's been one of the best relationships i've had with anybody so supportive and and but lets you do your thing um, yeah, because you guys your work does not look alike and you work on very different projects so it's really interesting that you've developed that i'm curious about you know you you come to the states um and you get your first job but how do you even break into the industry having knowing no one that works in in hollywood like how do you even start right. going you know hire me well, it's well, because again, it's one of those crazy things when people come and ask you how you get into the industry, and it's like it's it's different for every person. Um, one, I 
somebody had seen my work. Um, oh, yes, there was a fire at Universal Studios and they had burned down the back, back lot. So all the set designers in the union were working on that or all the available set designers were working on that. And so there was nobody in the union to do drawings. And so somebody who knew somebody who was doing a pilot over at Paramount asked if they knew anybody that could draw and uh, to do working drawings. So I got hired on that. And you do 30 days to get into the union. And you do 30, you come and become a junior B and then a junior A or vice versa. And then you become a senior, a senior set designer. And I did my 30 days on this pilot and it was at Paramount. And I, I literally walked into the Star Trek um, art department one lunchtime and asked to see the production designer and a very nice guy, Mike Akuda, um, said, yeah, sure, follow me. And he took me to the production designer's office and introduced me and we chatted and I showed him my work which was all just from that pilot and it was called down home it was sort of a, a bar and it was a three camera show so but it must have been the college work that he liked because he said well next season which starts in a couple of months time um i only have one senior set designer i'll i'll talk to production and see if i can hire you as a junior and so i think i then had a meeting you have to go to the union to meet with the or you have to do this test, which I got completely wrong. Uh, like this, the, 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 the sum of the riser and a tread on a staircase. And I remember explaining that in England, in architecture, it's this, the total sum hasn't got to be something. Anyway, I remember the, leaving, and that's how cocky a young man I was. It was. I remember leaving and they had given me a whole list of books to read. Um, because I'd said, you know, I'd only done this one pilot, 30 days, and where would I learn this stuff? And they sort of were very helpful and gave me a whole list of things, which I remember throwing in the bin in the parking lot as I left. That's how, but then, but then they didn't make me a junior B or an A. I didn't have to do 3000 hours before I became the next junior. And then, so the first year and a half of Star Trek Next Generation, I became a senior set designer within a year and heard through the grapevine that I was now going to be let go because the lot can only have a certain number of senior set designers on the lot. You have to have juniors and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, <clears throat> so my world fell apart because I was, I, you know, the year and a half on Star Trek. And my production designer, Richard James, this is great. He'd come in and, he'd, you know, Joe, have you read the script? Yes, well, design me something. I'll be back tomorrow. And I felt that I was designing you know, Star Trek. And um, when the news came that I was going to be let go, it was devastating. And this graphic designer in the office was like, oh, you've got to come to lunch with me. I'm going to go meet these art directors. And I wasn't in a happy mood at all. And uh, eventually she forced me to go. She insisted that I went with her. And of course, at lunch, I'm sitting there and everyone around the table is like, what's wrong with you, Mr. Happy? And I was like, well, I just lost the best job in the world. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. What do you need to do? You need to do some movies. And I was like, yes, I've heard I've got to do 10 years of television before I get to movies and all of that stuff. No, 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 no. Here, here's a telephone number. And they handed me a piece of paper with a telephone number. And I called it. 
and got an interview. It must have been that afternoon or the following day that I went to this interview and I interviewed with this art director, um, Andrew Precht and Tom Sanders, and they introduced me to their production designer, Norman Garwood. And Norman, it was a brief hello and that was it. And I remember Andrew showing me to the door and uh, then there was a loud voice from behind, you know, it's Norman Garwood calling Andrew and he said, oh, wait a minute, hang on. And so he left, he came straight back. He said, so when can you start? So I said, well, um, Monday, I guess, I, I have to give Star Trek, you know, three days notice. So I went back to Star Trek and called the production office and they were very, oh no, no, you don't have to leave straight away. I said, I think you misunderstand. I'd like to leave, I'd like to give you three days notice. Why, what are you doing? He said, oh, I got offered this Spielberg, Peter Pan movie um, so I'm going to go and set design on that. So I, my first movie was Hook. And I don't know, again, Norman Garwood was one of those people that you brush against and suddenly it's like, no, don't let him leave. I want him on the job. Your career in movies starts with Hook and then you go on to what is likely one of my favorite movies of all time, Dracula. Can you talk a little bit about basically working on Dracula? I, I love that movie, yeah, so I had to movie ask. The movie that wasn't supposed to be made. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we were all... So Norman Garwood had gone back to England, uh, Hook, and we, they were all... The art department was up and running doing Dracula and before we had finished on Hook. And um, like I said, I, or like, as you know, the movie wasn't supposed to be made. They let Francis let Dean or Alex Tavaleris just design. And... The fireplace in the Great Hall was so big, it had trees in it. And I think the budget, I'm sure it was. I'm thinking it could, I might be wrong, but no, I think the budget for the art department was coming in at 30 million or something stupid. And Sony just went, no. And Francis went, that's cool, because we didn't want to make this movie anyway. And then Sony went, no, 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 no. There's this, young, there's this young art department next door that's just done this amazing job on Hook. You'll hire those art directors as your production designer. And, and we were like three weeks away from shooting or something, something really crazy. No one thought they could put, we could pull it off, but we were this art department that Andrew Preck took hold of all the, all the stuff in England, whether the home that we built all that on stage. And then, yeah, that's right, because we had a where we had built some of Pirate Town for Hook, Crocodile Clock, that all became like a figure of eight for the chase. And it was, again, it was one of those movies that, even though I had been exposed a little bit to green screen and stuff on, um, on Star Trek and a lot on Hook, Dracula was all in camera. When you tell people, you know, the rat that runs along the beam that's upside down that's just a mirror and the beam is below the camera bottom and the rat is running along that it's all magical what they used to use in magic shows I think I think uh, Roman Coppola had a book that would be passed around and we tried to do everything physically and then but, but again Hook was this amazing experience where I was put in charge of at some point the go-between between the ILM guys and the shooting or you know the art department and I'd go and meet these guys and they go so how do you think we should do it and I like have a sketch because all I know is what I've read in Cinefax or 
you know, I guess we could do it this way. And then going, oh yeah, we like that idea. Let's do it that way. Really? Okay. Sounds good. Um, so it's all very, it was all very, um, I don't know how to describe it. It was all just so exciting and, and no one was ever, all these lovely people that just want to get, I know Norman Garwood, I used to go home and draw the kids' weapons and Norman Garwood one morning was in his office with Spielberg trying to explain these things to him and he's, he gives up at one point and just, Joseph, get in here, come and explain all this to Stephen and it's like, uh, there are no egos and yeah, it was interesting because there was so much, it was Sony's first movie as well, Hook, so they were throwing money at it and at the time, um, Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams and there was that culture in LA of, of adults or parents feeling that they weren't being the best parents for their kids. And so the movie got a bit soppy. It was quite dark to begin with, but you know, now you, there's sort of lines that could be taken and, by kids and thrown at their parents sort of thing. And at one point it became a musical. There were eight numbers that they shot that got cut out. There was only one that stayed in there. Oh, I watched the, the cast and crew screening on a Saturday morning and cried on the way home because of all the sets that we built, all those ships that we finished the interior of, the snooker table that we had in Dustin Hoffman's cabin that you never see. It's amazing. That was my first experience of, you gotta let stuff go. <laughs> you know, I was in charge of taking the, let's say the Barbie doll's house or Tinkerbell's um, grandfather clock where she lived and having the full-size one on my desk and then measuring everything because we were now building it full-size for Julia Roberts and making sure that if there was a leaf or a chip on that piece of wood in the small one, it was going to be there in the big one. That was my lack of experience going, well, there's never a direct cut, so, you know, it doesn't really matter. And they were beautiful sets. I remember Terry Gillingham, I met him once, just the once on that set. He came to visit because everybody who was anybody was coming by and visiting. And uh, Terry Gillingham just rubbing his hands on the plasterwork of these boats going, oh, real set, <laughs> you know, just quality, workmanship, all of that stuff. Because they were all at Universal to begin with. The art department was at Universal and they shipped me down to, to, to start Neverland as the onset. I was just a set designer, but I'm basically the art, onset art director. And we're, we've got a model of Neverland, but basically it's all waving hands and we built the, the, the models of, of all the ships and balsa wood and I would be sitting there on stage, literally waving my hands with a huge, I don't know, 40 foot boat being craned in and we're placing it. And it's like, it was so much fun. Can, can you talk a little bit about going back to, to Star Trek and the fact that this Star Trek, because you worked on Deep Space Nine for quite a while, um, it looked much different than the previous Star Treks as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the entire premise of it was quite different. And of course, that looked much different. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the design um, for, for Deep Space Nine? Yeah. So I actually, again, I think I was called back to do that because Mike Okuda, who'd originally introduced me to Richard James on, on Next Generation, who I worked with for a couple of years on that, he'd obviously suggested perhaps to Her Herman Oh, actually, we spoke about this recently. I think Herman had been told about me. He asked Michael about me, and then Michael said, yeah, you should get him involved. And I only did the pilot and the first seven episodes. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we had just come off 
Dracula. So again, you know, that combined with me being young and cocky and, you know, don't take no for an answer. Because all those years working in the Star Trek art department, I was always the one going, I don't understand why there's nobody in the Starfleet architects department going, why are we building this again looking the same? Why can't I do this? Because Rick Sternbeck was always in there going, ah, she, that's not very Starfleet. And I'd go, yeah, but Starfleet has to change at some point. We must progress. And so, and Mike Akuda used to love all those kind of, he, he told me recently, I didn't know, that I, I kind of was very, I made them laugh a lot. I didn't realize I did. I'm so glad I did. Because I really want, I think an art department or any working environment should be just, a lot of fun and most people think the art department's just having fun anyway so you might as well be having fun otherwise what's the point um so anyway so yeah so deep space so we had just finished uh, dracula and so we had learned how you know you can build a mold and pull vacuum forms and do all this stuff and we just hit uh herman zimmerman with it and I apologized years later for the bullying. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't, didn't use the word, when it was bullying, we just, oh, Herman, we should do this. And he'd walk away and go, look, there's no way we can afford that. And I said, yeah, but we can, we, we pull the, it's one big window. It was the, like the, the, the designs on the um, promenade, they're big teardrops. And then I cut it in half and it becomes a doorway and I cut it in a quarter and it becomes a light fixture. No, 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 we don't do that in television. And he'd wander off and then a couple of hours later he'd wander back and goes, okay, so let's try it, let's do this. And I know, again, the design was very, Nathan and I got into Bugatti because we designed some furniture for for Dracula. Lucy's bed is, I designed that, it's very, very um, Bugatti. And so we took all of that onto Star Trek. And again, I, from, my, from my early days with, you know, my favourites are always the Klingons because it's down and it's dirty and it's rusty. And we really, really tried to push that with, with Deep Space. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, 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 it's all a bit vanilla and it just becomes, you know, the burgundy carpet. And we broke it up. We did the best we could. It just certainly did look very different, but um, probably not as different as we wanted it. But we did... It was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, again, I remember the David Livingston was a, a producer, and we had this meeting with the DP about the what do you call um, control where Cisco comes out of this mm-hmm. uh, the bridge, mm-hmm. basically the bridge. And I was, I was, I was at, I'd re, I designed the set so that it actually where I designed some elevators, they could actually go down into the floor because I'd never seen an elevator on Star Trek work or in most shows. The doors open, you know, they walk in, the doors close, they wide a wall in if you're going to keep the shot going and you walk out. But I wanted to see an elevator actually move. So I designed the whole set around these two pits in the stage. I also always had a problem with Kirk or Picard standing in front of this huge screen trying to talk down to somebody. And the rest of the time was space, which would just be freaky, I think, after a while. So again, so I designed the screen in, uh, to, to be turned off when it's off. So we didn't have to you know, put a 
black out there and crinkly pieces of glass. And it would just be off. And it was smaller. When he's, when Cisco's talking to somebody, it's just a big screen television. And then what else did the DP not like? I think it was the ramps and things, because it was all on different layers. And he was like, you know. And David Livingston was was adamant about, no, I've never seen an elevator move. I hate that big screen. And the ramps are lovely, and we're going to keep them. And, and so uh, we got a... We, we started changing it a little bit. I remember the drawings just before they went off to the model maker for the actual exterior. It was our final attempt. I put a drawing on the wall, huge drawing of Starfleet looking uh, Deep Space Nine and drew all over it. And what we wanted, what we were trying to do with the interior, we put on the interior, exterior. And, and finally Herman said, yeah, sure. And, you know, we won that ba battle. and. Otherwise, it would have just looked, as I said, the, there's, there's got to be somebody in the Starfleet art department just going, oh, come on, <laughs> not this again. Um, you talk a little bit about how um, you, on Deep Space, you, you did the pilot in the first few episodes. And I was wondering if you talk, could talk a little bit about your experience on 24, because I had seen a video of you discussing, um, I guess, because I, I don't watch 24, so I'm kind of right. going by what I remember, but the first season was shot in one location. Then at some point you guys moved to a new location and it gave you the opportunity to change the sets because when you started, I guess you were sort of limited to um, what was shot originally, I guess, in the pilot. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between starting something and kind of leaving this legacy that you can work with, that others can work from for the future right. and, and coming in where you already have something that you're not really happy with, but you kind of have to work within certain constraints? And how right. do you make that sort of your own and create something that, you know, you're proud of and that still fits um, what you had to start with because of whatever reason? Yeah, 24. So I interviewed for the pilot and Joel, the creator, actually wanted to give me the job. But I had to then interview with somebody at the studio that preferred uh, the other chap. So the other guy did the pilot and it was all shot on location. Then this other person was at the time too big for television. He wanted to stay. He wanted to do movies. So Joel then said to the studio, can I bring him in and you know, do the series? And they made me interview with the same guy, guy again. So anyway, I arrive on set, on, uh, uh, Joel's giving me the job, and I look at the pilot, and uh, I asked him, I said, look, uh, there's things I don't like about, I love the space, and the space works because it, what we used to call the magic triangle is that Jack's office down to Nina and then across to Carlos or whoever. It was, it was just a great space. I said, look, I want to get rid of all the brickwork. The t I want to make it look a little bit more high tech. And Joel said, yeah, sure, fine. And so I went off and started designing it. And after about three days, Stephen Hopkins, the director, came to see me. He said, so uh, a little bird tells me that um, Joel's not very happy. I was like, why? I haven't shown him anything yet. He goes, yeah, that's the thing. He hasn't seen anything. I was like, well, it's just, I mean, I'm nearly done. It, uh, I, it's been three days. <laughs> so I went to see Joel and I walk into his office. So I said to Joel, so this is how I work. And he said, let me stop you right there. Let me tell you how I work. I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm a hands-on producer. I need to see everything. I'm, I'm totally involved with the sets and blah, 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 this and that. And I was like, I totally understand. I just haven't got it to a point where I was happy to show you yet. 
but this afternoon, if you're free, I'll bring everything to show you. So showed him that afternoon, everything is fine. And so for the first five episodes, I would go and find Joel and walk him through every set. We talked about every set before I even started designing it because he's a hands-on producer. So, okay, cool, no problem. So I think in episode five, there's a police station. So Joel, what kind of police station do you want? He said, well, you know, that NYPD blue, you know, typical precinct. And I go, okay, so I'm trying to create a show that looks different than anybody else, all right? I just want to make this show look cool. There's a scene in The Matrix when he's, he's being interrogated and his mouth seals up. Well, he's in this green room that's just green squares. It's very plain, John. There's a, there's a location at, uh, in North Hollywood where they've just fil- finished a police station and it has glass block and this, I'm not sure if it was brickwork or whatever. Anyway, it's very modern looking. I want to design an interior. I don't know what that interior looks like, but I want to design an interior like that thing we saw in the matrix. And if we need an exterior, we can cut to this place. Okay, sure, give it a go. So I built the set, corridors, the whole police station. I walked Joel through it and Joel goes, you know what, we don't need to talk about production design anymore. You're just my production designer. <laughs> and that was it. So for seven, I did 170 episodes and I think we only ever reshot one set once because I think it was Kiefer's or Jack's brother was in an office that had all these screens on, on a wall because he was part of the stock market. But because we couldn't afford screens, we just bid, did a big projection on a wall. And it didn't quite work or it wasn't shot. It was never established. So we had to reshoot that again. The 170 episodes that I did, I never... It was just my... It was my show. So when a director would arrive in a movie, the director is the man. If he wants gold lame wallpaper, then he wants gold lame wallpaper. You can do him some illustrations and try and show him some examples why it might look great or might not look great. But if he wants it, he wants it. He's got it. It's his movie. Television, you're the keeper of the look of the show. So when a director comes, he goes, oh, I shot in Pasadena last week. I love this house. And I'm there shaking my head and going, no, we don't do Pasadena. What do you mean? It's not that look 24 doesn't have that look and they look at you incredulously and go what are you talking about no 24 has a look it saves money in the long run because you're not asked to build anything that's impossible oh well we can't afford to do that but there's this other location that that would work really well for that we'll change the script according to that we had i had a lot of freedom with the directors directors would arrive and they would go okay so there's this bit in the script. I have no idea how we could possibly do this. So that's just an outline, mate. Look, we'll take the concept and we'll try, we'll make it as good as we can make it. Um, but we can change things. In other shows, I remember working on Star Trek. If Patrick Stewart wanted to change one word in a sentence, everything would stop and phone calls went up to the writer's room and then there would be discussions and then the telephone call would be, yes, you can change that line. But on 24, because it was set up at the beginning because of the real-time aspect as well. So we were all sitting around a table. How do you get Jack from one place to another? And we were all, all the heads of departments were always involved. Everyone was, you know, welcome to throw ideas around, which was then a shock when I went to work on other shows where I'm being, you know, that leader going, well, we can't 
because of scheduling, we could do this, this, and this, and she'd all that on a day, and I can, you know, still make them look, make it look good, rather than it's just not, it's not all just about design. I can make things look great. I mean, I can, again, because I had this massive warehouse, I could leave sets up for weeks and not touch them, and then an episode would come along and I'd go, oh, I can convert that into into that and so my money would is my money to do if someone's not going to turn around and go oh I want to oh a room with all this plasterwork detail and all that it's like no we don't we don't we don't do that on that show and one we don't we can't afford it so what happens usually on a television show is that you get the script and you design something say a couple of days then it goes back to the production office and they producers and people go, oh, I don't like this and I don't like that. And so they change it again. And then by the time you, you get to build, you're now overtime weekends. So now the set has to be made smaller. And the other thing was unique about 24 is that we get, we, a director would get two scripts at a time. So rather than a TV show, a regular TV show, you get a script, you've got seven days prep and then we shoot for seven days. So by the t- if I got a script, the maximum time I had to build was perhaps 12, 13 days. On 24, because I, we'd get two scripts at once, one director, two scripts, I'd have nearly a month sometimes to, mm. to build a set. So I wouldn't have to waste money on weekends and overtime and, and all of that. I mean, the, the guy at Fox told me a number of times, you know, it was pilot season. You know, it's pilot season again. The production designers doing the other shows are all really upset that they that they want the same money as you get on Twenty Four. And I was like, "And have you told them?" He goes, "Yep, I told them. They've already got more than you." Because <laughs> I didn't have much. I didn't have much. My art department was me and a set designer wow. and an art department coordinator. And you go to other shows where they had. You know, art direct, production designer, art director, couple of set designers. I had a couple of set designers when I would build the, you know, the sets for the beginning of the the, the episode, uh, the season. But um, and eventually, I think I got an art director in. But for the first three years, it was tiny. It was tiny. But I, but again, I like it. Just sort of worked. I'm curious about, you know, during these weird, strange times um, and even between jobs, how do you stay creative? Like, do you do you do you still draw on a regular basis or do you do you only really sit down to work? Like, how 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 does that look for you? Um, I'm not sure that there's another generation that's had to learn so much stuff. (laughs) Keep learning it. I'm now learning Blender because. Mm -hmm. So I first started with Ray Dream Designer um, and then moved to Alias Sketch. And like Nilo would say, you've got to learn, whatever program it is, you've got to learn to fly. And I flew with, uh, with uh, Alias Sketch. I, but they only did two versions, and I think those guys went off and did Maya, which mm. I then bought Maya and the encyclopedia, the library that came with it, and just gave up it was I think I think I also saw the credits of Monsters Inc and there were I don't know 300 people just doing the hair and I was thinking well this is pointless learning how to model and do this so I then picked I was then I then had to have computers that were running the OS 9 because they could still run sketch 
And I know when I first started 24, I was doing Le Mans sketch, not sketch up, it was just sketch. And then I went to England to do, to help, oh, a friend, uh, I just art directed the ships on uh, John Carter of Mars. Mm. And one of the guys in the art department was using Modo. And I just loved this white model with the lighting. It was just, there was something real about it. And I fell, fell in love with it. And because there was so much, either he had lessons or there was so much that could be downloaded or bought. I got into Modo and for years I've been using Modo, but I've been thinking uh, it's getting sluggish and also that I'm not, you know, I'm getting to retirement age and I don't want to spend $600 a year on a, on a maintenance. Um, and what I'm seeing on Blender, it looks amazing. It's come so far. It's this, this snowball where it was a year ago compared to where it is now. Um, so that's what's frustrating at the moment. I'm learning modeling again, all over again, and it's a different workflow. And um, yeah, we, you've got, you have to do so much until your, your skill, your design isn't then compromised by your skill as a modeler. And that's, you know, Nilo's lucky that he never puts his pen down and he just draws and draws and draws and draws and draws and draws. He doesn't, he, once a year, I think he did have a tablet and he did it digitally, but when you can draw like Nilo, then, you know, and nowadays everyone's into photo. I used to, when I first started doing sets and things, I would then run them through Photoshop filters because they were photo, they were almost photo realistic. And then we'd spend hours in meetings talking about the wood floor coloring. Whereas if it was just a pencil drawing, you just go, it's wood. There it is. You know, my pet piece showing my age is mood boards. My agent calls and says, you know, I'm sending you the script. Can you do mood boards for tomorrow? I was like, I hate mood boards. <laughs> because everybody just jumps, you know, jazz 1940s set in New York. So that's what they've scared, that's what they've typed into Google and they'll stick all these photographs together. But it says nothing. Whereas if you do, I do one illustration of, you know, whatever man falling off side of building, here's a look. Here's something that I spent three or four hours of my time that was worth showing my, my enthusiasm for your project rather than, you know, here's some black and white photographs of 1930s. We can do that in pre-prep. Hmm. You know, I think my agent said it was about the Spanish princess or something. I was good. I was asked perhaps to do the second season, and it was like, why? What was wrong? Can you do some draw some uh, mood boards? I was like, why? What was wrong with the first season? Well, nothing. They just want to know your ideas. But it's all in the same locations. Yeah, but they want to see your ideas, and I'm like, no, there's. <clears throat> what's the point if they had a new set you, you know whatever I could I'm not going to go oh only because it's going to be shot in Bristol or something you know go online and find lo what locations that you can shoot in Bristol and it's like no that's the first week of pre-production that's not me trying to get the job if you want me to do the job I'm, I'd love to do the job but no mood board should persuade you that I'm the man for the job, if you see what I mean. That's my, my take.
what would you do differently? Like knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently uh, in your career or would have you, would you have taken another route? No, uh, no, no. No. And I said, I had a motor, uh, not a motorbike accident. I had a push bike accident about five months ago coming down the mountain and, and shattered my arm into 27 pieces. And I was just saying to my wife that there is nothing I have done in my life. And there's things that, you know, other people might change, that I would go, there's nothing I would change. That got me into trouble. That, you know, I did this, I shouldn't have done that, or I should have done this. I wouldn't change anything except for those two seconds before I went around that corner. That it could completely change my life. It's really hard to use my left arm at the moment. And, you know, you need to use your left with the keyboard. Um, not being able to sleep. That's the only thing. People I've met, uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, uh, it would feel fake. I've always, I live by the sword. And as you can tell, you know, the way I speak is I, I, I don't apologize for trying to make what you want to make the best it could possibly be. And that was my conversation with production designer Joseph Hodges. You can find Joseph's work on various streaming platforms and on DVD and Blu-ray. And his most recent film, What Happened to Monday, is now streaming on Netflix. The Spark Podcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org. We'll be back with another episode of the podcast in two weeks' time.